From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa, and welcome to 2018. I'm Dylan Hall, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're bringing you an interview with Stephen Lewandowski, who talks about the concept of a post-truth world. Who controls the media? How do we know what's really going on in Parliament? Did 2017 even happen? How do we know? Before we talk about fake news, stay tuned for some real, according to me, environmental news, our headlines from around the world. Last week, France passed a law banning all oil and natural gas exploration and production by 2040. The law means that no permits will be given in the future for oil and gas exploration and that existing permits won't be renewed. The new law is part of France's goal to transition to renewable energy and meet their emissions targets. But 99% of the oil and gas used in France is actually imported, meaning they produce very little of the resource. So, though this law is, importantly, the first time in the world that oil and natural gas exploration and production have been legally banned, it's still largely a symbolic law. In other news, China has just announced that local governments will lead the way in fighting pollution in their regions. Local authorities will be able to set their own tax rates for corporate air and water pollution, and will also get to keep any revenue they raise from the taxes. The Chinese government said they have given control to local authorities because they hope it will encourage them to enforce environmental protection policies. Finally, the huge wildfire that's still burning in Southern California is now officially the largest in the state's modern history. The fire began on December 4th and is still raging. It's burned over 273,400 acres, which is larger than the cities of New York, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco combined. Over $110 million have already been spent fighting the fire. This year has already been the worst and most expensive wildfire year in California's history. Usually the fire season in California ends in October, but this fire hit in the middle of winter. Unfortunately for many, this fits with what climate scientists have been predicting, which is larger, longer wildfire seasons that could stretch year-round. Many argue that it's too expensive to act on climate change and cut carbon emissions, but these fires, only one of the initial symptoms of a warming planet, are tangible evidence of the very real costs of anthropogenic climate change. Are you concerned about the spread of fake news? That term might immediately make you think of Donald Trump scrubbing the Environmental Protection Agency's website of references to climate change. Or it might bring to mind alt-right sites like The Rebel, Breitbart, and Infowars. 
This state of misinformation that we're in now is often referred to as post-truth. But has the world ever really been a truthful one? How do we know what's true? And how do people process and react to fake news? This week, Tara and former Sidney Karbenik spoke with cognitive scientist Stephen Lewandowski about the current proliferation of false information. So, I think we're post-realism, post where facts matter. Not post-truth, because politicians have always sometimes spoken untruths. But now, the authority of facts seems to have gone. And certainly in America, and I'm afraid to say also in the UK, uh, people share a belief system that is disconnected from what I would consider, or scientists would consider, a conventional understanding of facts or evidence. The weapons of mass destruction was a misconception you might have corrected. Trump is not something you can correct, because if he lies five times a day, you, you, you cannot keep up. No one can keep up with correcting this and understanding what's going on. And in my opinion, that is precisely the point. It is precisely the point to create a blizzard of stuff that people sort of give up on uh, the knowability of facts. So my name is Sydney Karbonik, and today I'm interviewing Stephen Lewandowski. Stephen, could you give a brief introduction about yourself? Yeah, I'm a cognitive scientist at the University of Bristol in the UK, and that means I study how the mind works. And I'm particularly interested in how people respond to false information, fake news, and how you might be able to correct them. between the rhetoric and the substance of people's claims. And I think we have to recognize that, that just because there is rhetorical symmetry does not mean that there is substantive symmetry. So in your talk, you used the terms fake news, post-truth, and post-fact. I'm a bit confused. Can you use those terms interchangeably? Almost. I mean, I think there, you know, people are struggling at the moment to characterize the current situation where we have a lot of uh, disinformation, a lot of misinformation, a lot of information out there in the public sphere that's false. And so we're struggling to characterize what's going on. And post-truth has been a very common term to refer to what is going on right now. So you said the UK is trusting scientists more and more. 
Could you explain? Yeah, basically what I said was that in the UK, we have survey data showing that over the last 10 or 15 years, people's trust in scientists has actually increased, um, which is sort of at odds with this idea of a world that used to believe in truth and has now sort of fallen from grace. So the problem that I'm having with the term post-truth is that it implies very strongly that the world was once a place where truth was more important than it is now. And I'm not sure that that is really what's happening because I think there's always been deception and misinformation in public life. But what I think has changed is that in the past that was a very targeted use of misinformation to achieve certain political purposes. For example, the idea of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which was used to justify the invasion of Iraq in 2003, that was targeted to a specific political purpose, and it was a specific deception that was aimed at convincing the public of some specific goal. But what we're having now with uh, Donald Trump uh, in particular in the United States is the use of misinformation and disinformation, misstatements, deceptions, lies on a daily basis. Um, the statistics show that Donald Trump is speaking an untruth uh, five times a day and according to independent fact checkers. And that is qualitatively different. And I think that is what people refer to when they talk about post-truth, because we're now using information um, or disinformation, fake news all across the board, even sometimes when it doesn't appear to serve a specific purpose. In your talk, you explain that Trump is kind of giving this blizzard of, of false facts. Um, could you explain why? <laughs> well, that's what I think is happening, and that's what most people are, are who are studying this are saying now, that there is just this, this never-ending uh, uh, blizzard of, of falsehoods, misinformation, deception, um, you know, accusations that are baseless, and, and, and just this really bizarre rhetoric that comes out of the, the White House. And, um, you know, I, I would say that a lot of the tweets that come out of Donald Trump's iPhone or whatever are, are just blatantly uh, false and untrue. So you showed a really interesting graph about all the news stations. Mm -hmm. um, Fox News was kind of at the top there. Um, but you said uh, media such as Fox News, they aren't causing science denial. Mm. Um, could you explain? Yeah. Okay. Well, the particular data that I referred to there show they're from a survey. They are asking people two questions. Um, number one, what is your news source? And number two, how often do you watch it? And if we then look at what people say, and we ask them questions about 
facts, for example, that President Obama was born in the United States, which he was. He was born in Hawaii. There's absolutely no question about it. Um, and then what you find is that the people who say they watch Fox News and they watch it every day, they are more misinformed on that particular issue as well as some others than people who only wa watch Fox News once a week or people who watch any other news outlet. So there is an association between watching Fox News a lot and being misinformed. Now, an association means that we're measuring two, two things at the same time. What is it people watch and what is it they believe? But whenever you do that, you can uncover only associations and you can never infer causality. That is, it could be the case that the people who are already misinformed choose to watch Fox News because they're misinformed to begin with, rather than it being the other way around, namely that they become misinformed by watching Fox. And that is what I, what I was saying there. And it's a very important point because uh, very often when we look into association, we're tempted to infer a causal relationship, but we're not entitled to do that because the data cannot tell us that. You said deniers focus on small anomalies of truth to make a claim. Oh, I forget what example you gave, but it was really good. Yeah. Okay, well, they, they focus on, it's called cherry picking. Mm -hmm. So they will look at a thousand data points and then they will pick two that are in support of their preconceived ideas and then they will claim that that is representing the data in total, mm -hmm. which is false. So the example I used was an individual who uh, wrote an opinion piece that basically was saying climate change is harmless and we shouldn't worry about it. And his particular point was that for two years in a row, um, sea levels declined rather than increased. Now, that is true in a very narrow technical sense because it just so happens that for two years in a row sea level might go down because there are fluctuations in sea level. But the problem is that if you look at the data for the last 100 years or 80 years or whatever it is, that then there is clearly an upward trend. I mean, it is, it is just completely unavoidable to see that. Um, and in fact, I ran an experiment where I asked expert statisticians to, to tell me whether this sort of cherry picking is legitimate. And they, they uniformly said, no, that's misleading. That is not suitable for policy advice because the only thing that matters for policy is that there is an increasing trend. Uh, sea levels have gone up and they will continue to go up because of global warming. And the fact that for two years there was a minimal decline, just a fluctuation down, is completely irrelevant to that. And so what climate deniers do is to focus on these random fluctuation, and they're claiming that they show that climate change is nothing to worry about. But it's only because they focus on a non-representative subset of the data. Since they only focus on those little anomalies, shouldn't it be, um, shouldn't deproving them be easy? Because you could look at um, scientific consensus. Sure, you can, you, you know, it's very easy to disprove uh, climate deniers. In fact, they've been disproven for, on a daily basis almost for the last 30 years. And there is no scientific case 
that can be made in support of climate denial. Um, and we know that because if you look at the scientific literature and if you look at scientific conferences and if you look at what the scientists say, it is very clear that there is a consensus on the fundamental facts that the climate is warming from human greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and the problem is that climate denial is a well-funded political operation. It's not a scientific operation. It's a political operation that is trying to create the impression of a scientific debate where there is none. Starting with a thick black line, in the 1960s, more than 80% of young Americans, one of their life goals was philosophy of life. Okay, well, that didn't last very long. That has now gone down to around 50%. What's gone up is to be well off financially from 40% to now nearly double 80%. Being a leader has become important. Money has become important. There's been a shift across generations in what young Americans want out of life. Uh, at the same time, arguably, social capital has been declining. If you're looking at um, young Americans again, whether they trust institutions or government that has declined. It was low to begin with. That's declined further. Uh, thinking about social problems, there's a lot of jiggle, but it's perhaps slightly downward trend. But importantly, what's really down is people's intent to help the environment. So there, there are downward trends on some indicator variables that um, collectively I refer to as social capital. And there's a lot of evidence to show that societies are more resilient to shocks and distortions if they have more social capital. Well, American society, and I apologize, I don't have data for Canada, but uh, in American society, arguably, that has been decreasing. What's been increasing is polarization. Of course, everybody knows So that. what everybody is polarization, and how can you link it to the origins of post-truth? Well, polarization means that people on opposite sides of politics, let's say progressives and conservatives, that they have drifted further apart, that they're more polarized in their opinions. And in the United States, you can show that up through the 1970s or so, there, there was some overlap in the positions taken by Republicans and by Democrats. So there were centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats that could work together to uh, create legislation that was acceptable to both sides of politics. Now, what's been happening since then is that the two parties have become much further apart, such that now there's very little overlap between Republican and Democrat positions. Now, the important thing is that this polarization was asymmetrical. In other words, it wasn't the case that the two parties drifted apart 
each into their own corner of politics. But instead, what's happened is that the Republicans have moved away from the center and have become more extreme over the past 30 years, whereas the Democrats have remained relatively uh, stable in their positions over time. And this is based on a statistical analysis of thousands of decisions taken in the House of Representatives uh, since basically late in the 19th century. So um, we're, we can be pretty confident that this polarization is almost unprecedented and that it is asymmetrical. Okay. So do you study or research why Democrats believe scientists more than Republicans? Yes, I do. Um, and the answer is that there, there, there are several important variables. Um, the most important variable is that many scientific findings that are important today challenge the idea that free, unregulated markets are the best way to organize society. And Republicans and libertarians and conservatives, they hold this idea of a free market very dear. They, they, they become emotionally very challenged if somebody says that free markets are not the only way to organize a society. And the problem is that climate science is making it very clear that we have to change the way we do business. And that means we have to interfere in some way or other with the free market through a tax, through regulation, through a price on carbon, whatever. And that is extremely challenging to Republicans. And that is one of the reasons why I can ask people four questions about the free market. And that gives me a very good idea of their attitudes towards uh, uh, climate science. Preferences. Which raises the question whether there's hope. What could we hope for? Well, and this is where things get to be interesting because, because the Republican leadership specifically uh, matters a great deal in this. There is evidence by Robert Brawley, a colleague of mine, who showed that the reason there is no polarization on climate change in the United States is because the Republican leadership withdrew from the issue. And then the partisans followed suit. But it's not a natural law that Republican voters have to be polarized on climate change. It's because the leaders went that way. Now, if the leaders go the other way, interesting things can happen. Let me show you one example from recent, the last two years. This is showing Republican approval of Vladimir Putin. Now, you may think that the Republicans, having been called warriors for decades, vilifying anything Russian or Soviet, that they really wouldn't like Vladimir Putin. And yeah, in 2015, they didn't. Only 12% gave favorable ratings of Vladimir Putin, less than Democrats. You know, the soft lefties who love anybody, they uh, endorse Putin 15% of the time, Republicans only 12% of the time. Two years later, Republicans went up by 20 percentage points to 32%. One in three Republicans now holds a positive opinion of Vladimir Putin. 
Democrats have gone down further. How could that have happened? Well, I think it's pretty obvious there's one guy who took over the Republican Party and who has more connections to Russia than most Russians have to each other. <laughs> and that guy uh, took along the Republican base, adding 20 points to the favorability reading, rating of a uh, foreign leader who's not exactly uh, friendly to the United States at all times. So if that can happen, anything can happen. You highlight the need of good leadership for change, but in terms of what we can do, um, you talked about technocognition as a solution. Could you explain? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think in terms of what you can do, obviously, you can get engaged in politics and apply political pressure on the established parties uh, in, in the usual way, you know, by uh, meetings writing letters to the editor, writing to your MP, demonstrations, joining parties, you know, and there are countless opportunities for that. Um, but in parallel to that, yes, technocognition, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that part of the problem we're having now is that the technology, the internet technology, is facilitating the spread of misinformation because there's absolutely nothing in the architecture of the internet um, to differentiate um, between truth and falsehood, and there is nothing to make it easier to spread truths rather than falsehoods. And so what I'm thinking of is that we should design clever changes to the technology that enables people to uh, uh, discern truth from falsehood more easily. And they're, they're simple little things. Let me, let me give you one example that I used in my talk, which I really like. There is a website in Norway that is um, a news site that is requiring their readers to take a quiz on an article before they are allowed to post a comment. Now, what that means is that anybody can still comment. There's no censorship. However, before they're entitled to do that, they have to demonstrate that they, they've read the article and they've understood it by passing this multiple choice quiz. And by the time they've done that, they will have also cooled off and they will have had a chance to reflect some more about what they really want to say. So having that tiny bit of, of a gateway there, a gatekeeper, um, is likely to improve the quality of the comments because it is keeping people out who haven't read the article or haven't understood it. So those are the little things that I mean by technocognition that I think will make some difference in the long run. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. But above all, what we really need, unfortunately, like it or not, is a fierce political battle to uh, 
deal with the current crisis. And I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you. That was Sidney Carbonick speaking with cognitive scientist Stephen Lewandowski about fake news and our response to it. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know our listeners and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. Speaking of which, do you have a New Year's resolution to tell stories about multifaceted environmental topics on the radio? If you answered yes, you should consider joining our team. If you didn't answer yes, you might still want to consider joining our team. For more info on that, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney, Shelley Jodoin, Sophia Osborne, Jason Wong, and Sydney Carbonick. I've been your host, Dylan Hall. Catch you next week. <laughs>